this week's 51%, a regional Girl Scouts continues its mission despite the pandemic. Most of our programming is girl-led with adult support, and it really teaches them to think independently, to plan and execute programming. Hear about the economic well-being of women in Vermont, and Dr. Jerry Burns talks about etiquette for a Zoom wedding. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Like most every facet of our society, the Girl Scouts have had to adjust to life during a pandemic, and a regional Girl Scouts in New York named a new CEO earlier this year, who takes over during challenging times. Brenda Episcopo is the new CEO of Girl Scouts of Northeastern New York. She most recently served as CEO of the United Way of New York State, the State Association of United Ways. I spoke with Episcopo at the end of February about her new role, cookies, camp, and more. You know, Girl Scouts of Northeastern New York, our mission is to inspire and build courage, confidence, and character in girls to make the world a better place. And it's a great match for a culmination of a lot of experience I've gained in the nonprofit field over my 20-year career. And like many nonprofits, Girl Scouts has faced incredible challenges in light of the impacts of COVID and declining membership trends. So I, I'm excited to be here today because I think it's a pivotal time for us to reimagine how we reach more girls, reach them where they're at, and get them a solid foundation for eventual women's leadership roles. That's what we're all about here, and I think this is a great match for me and my background and my skills. Women's leadership looks different today than several years ago, decades ago, uh, during Girl Scouts. So when you say kind of grooming women to succeed in, in women's leadership roles, that is different, right? Uh, we're seeing women in leadership roles that they did not occupy before uh, with, with a, a different degree of power, you know, thankfully a lot more power. So maybe you could expand on, on the vision for Girl Scouts when it comes to that. Yeah, so Girl Scouts has been around since 1912. And when you think of a, a program or a slate of programs that has such rich history, people often wonder, have we kept up with the times? And it's interesting because when, you know, I've been here three weeks now, and when I'm looking at the programs that we're engaging girls in, I am just blown away at how forward-thinking and innovative they are. We have a whole track of programs around STEM and uh, developing technology skills and girls, the traditional outdoor programming that builds leadership skills through courage and confidence, uh, building their belief in themselves and their readiness to face new challenges every day, as well as some very technical, tactical, skills-based program such as Dare to Climb. Dare to Climb is one of our signature programs for older girls where we bring in mentors from a number of fields that historically have under uh, under-engaged women leaders in. So in this year's Dare to Climb program, we have a mentor uh, woman who's an architect who is talking about STEM, STEM skills, how art, creativity, and building come, come together for, for forward-thinking opportunities for girls. We have uh, a number of mentors in other non-traditional fields that expose girls to what's possible, which is anything is possible. 
you talked about leadership. Let's talk about um, other roles. I know when I, I'm not going to tell you what decade, but it was several decades ago uh, when the Girl Scout, when I was of age to be in the Girl Scouts. And I always thought, huh, be a lot more fun to be in the Boy Scouts where they're outdoors and they're camping and doing all of that because I'm an outdoorsy kind of kind of gal. Um, that has obviously changed dramatically over the years. That's not the case anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. And you're right on with that perception. I'll give you an example. Last week, Last weekend at Camp Hidden Lake, we had a group of girls from multiple troops who came together to work on a day-long program about how to plan their projects that are going to make a difference in the world. So this is a, a learning, a planning, and then they can go forward and execute their community service projects. At the same time, there was another group of teenage girls who were camping out in tents in the snow. And they were building their own campfire. They were cooking dinner over the fire, camping out in tents for the weekend. So really um, very much have stepped up our outdoor programming for girls, both traditional and non-traditional type programs, day programs, camps, overnights. You know, obviously COVID has put a, a slight wrinkle in some of those things. But the great thing about outdoor programming is a lot of it can be done quite safely um, with distancing and protocols in place. So we're, we're pretty excited to be here and be offering so many robust programs. When it comes to the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts, you know, we, we want girls to succeed in the way that's best for them. So the fact that Boy Scouts of America allows Girl Scouts in their programs, if that's what a girl chooses, we support that choice. Absolutely. At the same time, we believe we offer some stellar programs and opportunities to network with other women and learn from peer groups that they can't get anywhere else. And and at the same time, you know, I think you'll find this really interesting. There's a general lack of awareness of the Girl Scout Higher Awards, whereas the Boy Scouts are very well known for their Eagle Award, their Eagle Scout Award. It's the highest award you can achieve in Boy Scouts. Do you even know what the Girl Scouts highest award is? I don't. Most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have a bronze, silver, and gold award track, which have very rigorous standards. And um, like many other things that women achieve, are just lesser talked about and lesser known. So it's an interesting dynamic that we as a council have committed to raising awareness about the amazing projects that these girls are leading that, by the definition of the gold award, will last beyond their involvement. You know, here you are during COVID, uh, when all nonprofits uh, have had such a tremendous uh, year trying to just stay afloat. What is the status uh, for, for Girl Scouts for Northeastern New York um, in terms of finances? I mean, you know, the cookie sale went on. That's extremely popular. But, you, you know, you weren't going door to door this year selling cookies. Oh, we, you know, when you when you look at it, we rely heavily on cookie sales for year-round funding for our council and our local troops. So we're in our second year now of COVID-impacted cookie sales because last year the cookies had already arrived in the capital region when everything went into lockdown. So we had to get really creative about how to move all the cookies that we had ordered. Um, never at that time did we dream we'd still be here um, a year later in another cookie season, but thankfully we had time to plan. And so we've been able to pivot programming to teach girls online sales, how to monitor their online store, 
keeping them safe with all kinds of parental controls in place at every level of girl engagement in the cookie program. And I'm happy to say while our goal is significantly reduced from last year, we are doing really well toward our goal. But then the other big part of our programming is camp, and camp was not able to run in 2020. I am also happy to say that although, again, we are restricted in our numbers due to social distancing and protocols, but our camp uh, sign-up opened a week and a half ago, and we've already had to expand our uh, slots available at camp because the overwhelming um, sign-ups from girls across our footprint has been extremely high. People are very much looking com- looking forward to coming back to camp in a safe environment. And the programs that we're designing are taking every health and safety protocol into account for keeping girls in pods and quarantines and and um, social distancing and masking and, and all of the things that go along with it. But I'm happy to say our particular council had a healthy enough foundation that we've been able to weather COVID. A lot of nonprofits have not. It's a, it's a, it's a resource-strapped field in general, but I'm very happy to say we're here to stay. We have had a constriction. We've had to cut slots and numbers back. Last year we laid off 25% of our workforce. We, we had to close some, some popular aspects of our business. Um, but it's able, been able to retain a solid foundation that we can build our programs on for this year and even further for next. And she credits a family-founded supermarket chain in the Northeast with helping the Girl Scouts keep their cookie sales afloat. Last year, we were very fortunate to have developed a unique and time-limited partnership with the Golub family and Price Chopper. And um, what that, that's allowed us to do two things. Last year, they helped us with the cookies that we had ordered in stock, but we couldn't send girls out to sell and deliver in our traditional ways by offering their stores as contactless pickup sites. And they'll be doing that again this year. So the girls are tracking the inventory. They're keeping track of um, all the programming. But you can pick up your Girl Scout cookies at Price Chopper. And that saved us last year, frankly. The, the other part of the program is a lot of people don't realize that Girl Scout cookie sales are actually a girl program. It, it teaches girls business skills. They earn different levels of badges and titles. If you have passed a certain number of classes that you take, you earn your title of cookie CEO as a girl. Um, you get business cards. They learn how to set up their own online stores. They learn marketing strategies. And this year, we've been able to take what Price Chopper did for us last year and leverage it into a year-round leadership training program for girls with several members of the senior leadership team from the Price Chopper Corporation. Everything from marketing to inventory control to health and safety standards business practices and finance. It's really growing into such an amazing program for the girls. That is fantastic. See, there's usually good from the bad, right? I mean, you can usually Uh find something and uh, refresh my memory, the age of Girl Scouts, and then are there still brownies? There are still brownies. Girl Scouts typically start around age five, and they go all the way through high school. Uh, There's a progressive track. Typically, when a girl reaches their high school years, even sometimes as early as junior high, they start working on their highest awards, which takes some time. 
um, and that's typically what the older girls do. Then they can become ambassadors to Girl Scouts, which which we have um, ambassadors on our board of directors, which are high school junior seniors uh, that have have or are working on their gold award projects. And then they can become delegates and eventually transition into volunteers. So the the seamless loop opportunity exists. Um, we have some people on staff that have been with Girl Scouts since they were brownies or daisies as five-year-olds all the way through their highest awards and then being employed at Girl Scouts. Anything else you wanted to mention, Brenda? Please feel free. I would just say that you know if if you look at some of the pro, uh, some of the program successes and the stories that we share, one of the hallmarks of our program is that most of our programming is girl led with adult support, and it really teaches them to think independently, to plan and execute programming that they learn from and their peers, and and we have such astonishing accomplishment from the girls in our programs. One of them, we are awarding our first Medal of Honor of our council that is the Girl Scouts Medal of Honor from Girl Scouts of USA to an 11-year-old girl who saved the life of her neighbor. So the stories just never cease to amaze me. We have the best leadership training pipeline programming for girls that exists, and I am so excited to hear what they become as they grow into adults. Wait a second. Back up, Brenda. So the, this is the Northeastern Council's first Medal of Honor award. Yes. And what did the 11-year-old do? Leah Schwarzmer was an 11-year-old girl. She and her friend were playing in their neighborhood when they noticed an elderly man laying at the foot of his stairs. They approached him and he did not respond to them. He had a head injury and it was obvious that he had been laying there for some time. Um, the There was blood present and it was dry. Uh, he was not responding to their words. So Leah's friend went to get a neighbor to call 911 and went to go get her mom, who happens to be a nurse practitioner. And Leah, our Girl Scout member, stayed with him and began to administer first aid until the ambulance arrived. They don't know how long he had been laying there, but no other neighbors had noticed or intervened. So without their actions, he may not have survived. That was Brenda Episcopo, CEO of Girl Scouts of Northeastern New York, which represents nearly 8,500 Girl Scouts in 15 counties. The United Nations theme for International Women's Day, which was March 8th, was Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. A discussion on the economic well-being of Vermont women looked at data and policy changes experts say are needed to bridge disparities between genders. 51%'s Pat Bradley reports. Vermont Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray is serving her first term and is hosting a series of discussions with constituents and stakeholders across the state on targeted issues. Her latest seat-at-the-table discussion focused on the economic well-being of Vermont women and was timed to coincide with International Women's Day. Gray, a Democrat, says while the global event recognizes women's social, cultural, political, and economic achievements, it also highlights a need to close gender gaps in Vermont. I want to actually draw on some of the data that we know of. Uh, We know that in the month of November, 73% of unemployment claims were filed by women in Vermont. That is the highest percentage of filings by women in any state in the nation. So today we're going to dive into the data 
and the impact on women. Vermont Commission on Women Executive Director Carrie Brown said COVID-19 is exposing and exacerbating entrenched inequities for the state legislature to confront. The COVID relief money that's coming from the federal government provides Vermont with an opportunity to think strategically about how to use that money to benefit working families um, and working parents in particular. Child care is the other thing. I know that the legislature is working hard on this right now. The help that the, our child care system needs is profound and dramatic. And then paid family and medical leave is another one. There are a number of bills in the state legislature right now. Change the Story Vermont has been collecting and reporting on Vermont-specific data for six years. Executive Director Jessica Nordhaus said they also use some national data, and recent reports of interest focus on the gender wage gap. The International Women's Policy Research Group just released an analysis on the weekly gender wage gap by race and ethnicity. And what that's showing is the racial and gender wage gaps really do remain profound. So we see weekly earnings for Latinx women are just 58% of white non-Hispanic men, and Black women's earnings are at 63% right now. Vermont's first executive director of racial equity, Susanna Davis, says policies must include all communities at risk. All of our work should have process equity built into it, which means we've got to hear directly from people. Be less prescriptive in telling them this is what we think is best for you based on our history of always being in power and often leaving you invisible. And instead, pivot to what do you need to make you whole? And then we do that. It's smart, it's simple, and it's inclusive in a way that people have have agency. And not because we give them agency, because that's not something to be given, but it's just something that we can stop denying folks. Vermont Women's Fund Director Meg Smith hopes the pandemic is a catalyst that will foster positive policymaking. We have a new landscape that we're dealing with, and as um, perhaps discouraging as, as it might be on the surface, it's really actually giving us a much clearer picture and a more accurate landscape and framework for us to move forward. Lieutenant Governor Gray is hopeful that pending proposals both in Vermont and nationally will help the economic status of women. There's a lot out there. I think the moment is right in many ways. We have to act. We have to act now to address the economic well-being of Vermont women and the crisis that we face. For 51 percent, I'm Pat Bradley. And just before International Women's Day, The Economist released its ninth annual Glass Ceiling Index, or GCI. The GCI is a yearly assessment of where women have the best and worst chances of equal treatment at work in countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a group of mostly wealthy countries. The index combines data on higher education, labor force participation, pay, childcare costs, maternity and paternity rights, business school applications, and representation in senior jobs. This comes as the glass ceiling cracked on Wall Street March 1st as Jane Fraser became the first woman to lead a large American bank, Citigroup. The U.S. moved up four spots on the index since last year, to number 18. Yet while its proportion of women in management roles and on boards is above average, it remains stuck below the OECD average with no federally mandated paid parental leave. Sweden is the best place to work if you're a woman. 
followed by its Nordic neighbors, Iceland, Finland, and Norway. The Nordics are particularly effective at helping women complete college, secure a job, access senior positions, and take advantage of quality parental leave systems and flexible work schedules. South Korea bottoms out the index for the ninth year in a row, with Japan and Turkey not far behind. Societal norms in Asia still expect women to choose between having a family or a career. Britain moved up three spots on the index to number 20 this year. Its share of women in senior jobs is around one-third. Germany moved down the ranking from last year to number 22. German women hold just 29 percent of managerial roles and a quarter of seats on boards. France ranks number five in the GCI, the same as last year. And France ranks second for the highest share of women on company boards, behind Iceland. And now, Dr. Jerry Burns reflects upon attending a wedding, virtually. Even though it seems like the world has stopped since the global pandemic hit, it really hasn't. All of us who have survived or escaped the virus have somehow continued with the business of living. We've bought countless items online, gotten takeout, created new businesses, moved, had babies, and reconnected online with cherished friends. We have been eating, some of us too much, baking, some of us too much, drinking, some of us not enough, changing, losing, and getting jobs. Life has marched on just as it always has, but to a very different drummer. People have also made life milestones, like my son who graduated college during the pandemic. And of course, people have gotten married. Now about getting married. Barry and I were invited to a Zoom wedding, and on the day of the blessed event, my first thought was, what do I wear? Maybe virtual pandemic weddings are different from pre-pandemic celebrations. I thought immediately of my son, not because he's getting married, but because he attended an in-person wedding in 2020. Even though it was during the pandemic, Zach approached the wedding just like normal. He wore a suit. His girlfriend wore a pretty dress with a shawl. They purchased a gift on the couple's registry, which my son forgot to bring to the wedding. As I said, he approached the event just like normal. The wedding was also mostly normal as far as weddings go, my son told me, save for little things, like tables set far apart from one another and pre-wrapped sandwiches, which made up the meal. Oh yes, and masks. My son's girlfriend's mask was a beautiful compliment to her dress. Who would have thought that masks would be elevated to the level of couture? But here we are. Zach's friend's wedding was held outdoors. People were there in person, even if they were socially distant. But our Zoom pandemic wedding was another story, which brings me back to the question of the hour. What should I wear? Zoom dressing etiquette is a little on the informal side. Would that work for a wedding? I wondered if dressing in my everyday pandemic house clothes would honor the couple. It would surely conform to typical Zoom dress, but would it work for a wedding? Then again, I wondered if I was too dressed up, if that would be weird. And most importantly, would the couple even see me on the Zoom call? My brain tried on one idea after another. I could dress like I do for storytelling events, but that would mean color coordinating with my husband. That felt too formal. I could dress like I do when I teach college students. Yeah, that could work. But which attire? My first day of class wear? Or the more informal, cozy sweater professor garb that the chair of my PhD department sported so beautifully? 
Like him, I have the cozy sweater, glasses, and the absent-mindedness of the professor archetype, but not the pipe. No, I thought, the loving couple didn't need to see a professor look when they were getting married, even if they did meet in college. Truth be told, I wanted to wear my pair of fuzzy penguin dorm pants. Couldn't I top those with a pretty shirt? No, no, no. Costume malfunctions are a thing, and Zoom has some prominent variations. I mean, the video camera was turned on when Jeffrey Tubin was <clears throat> turned on during a Zoom meeting with colleagues at the New Yorker magazine. What if there was music and dancing at the Zoom wedding and carried away with the joy of the occasion I stood up suddenly to dance during the wedding in my puffy penguin pajama pants? Not as bad as Tubin's situation, but still... No, I had to wear a full outfit, and time was running out, so I settled on a pretty shirt that I sometimes wear for storytelling and teaching, plus a long skirt and slippers. No one would see the slippers, and if they did, well, my slippers are not penguins. My husband didn't change his clothes. He doesn't agonize over details like me. Good thing, or we would probably still be planning our own wedding. When the Zoom call started and we awaited the ceremony, I scanned all the Zoom guests. Some had on pretty clothes, but most were in everyday togs. One of the soon-to-be sisters-in-law was cozy on her couch in an oversized sweatshirt. Some people didn't even put on their videos. But nobody was overdressed. The groom's brother later told me that he was happy to see people in their everyday home duds. I mean, we are home on the couch watching a wedding. It got me thinking that attending a Zoom wedding is more like watching TV than attending a party. I mean, would you wear a suit to binge-watch Grey's Anatomy? The range of clothing ran from sweatshirts to very pretty shirts, the gamut, and all of it was fine because the real focus was on the happy couple who were dressed to the nines, not the Zoom guests. So, if you are ever invited to a Zoom wedding, don't worry too much about Zoom wear. Remember, for the most part, no one's going to see you. Just be you and be present because that's what anyone really cares about. But if there's a chance you can dance, put a skirt on over your pajama bottoms in case, just like I did. Dr. Jerry Burns is a storyteller, writer, and educator living in New York's Hudson Valley. You can find her at storycrafters.com. Burns also is an adjunct professor in the Department of Communication at the State University of New York at New Paltz. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Chartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1652. 